invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis 22. Genesis 22 this evening. And I'm right now having a fierce debate in my head as to how far I'm going to go tonight. We have an ambitious slate ahead of us. <laughs> I may not do it all. We'll just let's let's see what the Lord what the Lord does. As we begin tonight, we pick up right where we left off on Sunday morning. We're still atop Mount Moriah. Moriah, the, the mount of God's choosing. Moriah meaning either God's choice, chosen of the Lord, or it also means foreseen of the Lord. He knew this was coming. And as we talked about on Sunday, Abraham's entire life and entire walk of faith leads to this moment, this chapter. What is a chapter to us, but was the apex of his walk. It all comes together, it, it, it comes to bear. What happens after this? There are a few more significant things with Abraham, but this, this is the deal. This is where it all comes together. And here on top of this ridge, there in what at that time was Salem. Salem actually would have been just to the south end of the ridge. But up on this ridge, Abraham went to offer his son, whom he loved, his only son, Isaac. He's gonna offer him as a burnt offering. He had fire, he had the knife. You know the story, we went over this. He bound his son, Isaac. Isaac had to have been bound willingly, laid him upon the wood, was about to take the knife to him when the angel of the Lord, that is the visible God, that is none other than Jesus Christ, in my estimation and in my confidence, he stopped him. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad, verse 12, and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God. Now, Jesus knew, God knew, but Abraham needed to know that he knew, right? Does God know that you know that you trust him? That's an interesting way to put it because sometimes I'm not sure. Do I really trust God? And if I'm basing it on my behavior of the last week, can, can you say based on what you did this week, oh, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, I trust the Lord. Have you trusted him this week? Can you say that he looks at you this week and says, see, now you know that I know that you know that you trust me. He wants you to know. Remember the apostle John said, these things were written that you may know that you have salvation in Jesus. That there would be no guesswork. God doesn't want us walking in guesswork. Oh, I don't know, maybe, perhaps, if he's in a good mood on that day. I'll be saved? No, no. He wants you to know that he knows that you know that you trust him. I think that's amazing because it's not just about God being aware of our faith, it's us being aware of our faith. And it's us learning that yes, we do believe in him. And so he takes us through these times, these trials, these tests, so that our faith will become real to us. Not a church thing, not a religious thing, not an empty ritualistic exercise, but genuine, actual to us. So that if you're Gail tonight, what are you doing? 
Your trust in the Lord. You have faith in the Lord. I know Gail does. I know that she knows that he knows that she knows he does. She does. Faith. He wants you to know. If you don't know, if you're not absolutely assured that you have faith in Jesus, I encourage you to pray three simple words. Increase my faith. Increase my faith. And then I encourage you to buckle up. Because he will do whatever it takes for you to know that you believe in him. Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And of course, we talked about Isaac was unique. There was no other Isaac. Even if there had been at that time someone else named Isaac, there was no other Isaac, the son of laughter, begotten by Abraham and Sarah from a womb that was dead but made alive. Truly a miracle child by the hand of God. No other Isaac, no other Isaac whom he loved. He was singular, unique. You have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked, verse 13, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide Yahweh Yireh, The Lord will provide on the mount that God has foreseen. As it is said to this day, the mount, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Well, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, and watch this, listen very closely, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sandwiches on the seashore. That's a lot of sandwiches. (laughs) I was told by the staff today, specifically, okay, let's be be honest, it was Jeff. (laughs) Every time you say that, all I hear is sandwiches on the seashore. So I said, well, I can, I can emphasize it differently. I can say, I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. He said, no, that's worse. I still hear sandwiches. So, okay, sandwiches it is. I'm gonna bless you, he says. But note this, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. If I said to you tonight, In the name of Rick, I promise you. I might get a few chuckles. I might see some hesitations. And if someone thought I was serious, I would probably get a, who do you think you are? Are you kidding me? In the name of Rick, I guarantee it. What kind of guarantee is that? And yet the angel of the Lord, the visible God, He says in verse 16, by myself I have sworn. God says, I swear to God. In the most appropriate of ways, God says, I swear by myself. That's how absolutely assured this word is. Only God can say that. Only God has the veracity, the the truth, the faithfulness to actually say, by myself, 
I guarantee it. By myself, I swear to you. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, he says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. That's where Paul got it. Philippians chapter two, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But God said it first, I have sworn by myself. He says in Isaiah 45, 24, they will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, that is Jesus, and all who are angry at him, that is the Lord, that is Jesus, will be put to shame. Me is the Lord Yahweh. Him is Christ Jesus. And so in Isaiah 45, he swears rightly on himself. He's the only one who can do that. By myself I have sworn and I'd like you to turn over to the book of Hebrews, all the way over in the New Testament, toward the end of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter six. This phrase, by myself I have sworn, is so important, so significant, the Hebrew pastor gives us commentary on it, explanation for it. And so you need to note this, it's a direct parallel in Hebrews chapter six, picking up in verse 13. Hebrews 6, 13. The pastor writes, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. By myself I have sworn. Saying, verse 14, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you, a direct quote from Genesis 22, 17. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Abraham obtained the promise. What promise? Isaac. Well, wait a minute. If you're here Sunday, and you know we looked at this and studied this, Isaac's probably in his 30s. So how is it at that moment on Mount Moriah that he obtained the promise of Isaac? Because the promise was, through Isaac, your descendants shall be numbered. But now he says, sacrifice to me, Isaac. Offer him up. Isaac was as good as dead but the promise was fulfilled anyway, and so he had the promise, he obtained the promise that even though now in his 30s Isaac was as good as dead, now Isaac is, as it were, resurrected. Now, he wasn't resurrected, he didn't die because the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham from offering him. But as far as Abraham was concerned, he was going up the mountain to kill Isaac and he was gonna come back down with a resurrected Isaac. And so he obtained the promise such as it was, verse 16, for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed or he guaranteed with an oath. So here's the promise Here's the oath, and the oath, the swearing, is on me. So that, verse 18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. 
And this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And if you've been with us, you know who Melchizedek is. Not even gonna get into that tonight, but he says, by myself I have sworn. The Hebrew pastor says right there, you get a double charge of the truth of the oath of God. I swear it to you and I swear it on my name, my word and my name. And so we can know this promise. By myself, I have sworn, he says, back in Genesis 22, you can go back there now. And then after swearing by his name, he reaffirms the great Abrahamic covenant that he's now reaffirmed several times, Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And now for good measure, Genesis 22, he reaffirms it again. By the way, that's five reaffirmations. Five times he restates the covenant again and again and again and again and again. Five times. And five being the number of grace in the Bible, it is the grace of God that continues to come to us and tell us, I've got you. I swear to you. I will be there for you. I'm gonna get you through. Your part is to trust me to know that you know that he knows that you know. I will take care of the rest. So here on the, <laughs> on the ridge of his own future sacrifice, for this must be Jesus speaking, he reaffirms the covenant to Abraham. Emblematically, he promises the multiplication of Abraham's descendants, saying they're gonna be as the stars. That word as is a, is a preposition in the Hebrew that we would say like. So he's not saying that I'm gonna give you as many descendants as there are stars in the heavens. He says, like the stars in the heavens. Look up, you can't even count them. That's the kind of descendants I'm gonna give you, uncountable. Or the sands of the seashore, the sand witches on the seashore. I'm gonna give you so many descendants that, that it's next to impossible to count. And that's the promise. But then he says this, and I love this. He says, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. They're gonna take the gate. The Hebrew word gate, shahar, is the entrance to a city. It can also be translated port, although the Jewish people really were not into sailing much, didn't like the sea, asked Jonah. So it, the port is not really the word in use here, it's gate. Now, you need to understand, when, when you, if you were to go to a tell in Israel, they, they tell you a lot when you look at them, a tell that <laughs> tells you a lot. Anyway, archaeological digs of ancient cities that have been unearthed, and you go in and walk through them, and one of the most profound to walk through is Tel Dan up in the north. There's Tel Sheva down in the south. And when you go to these and you walk in, you come to where we know this, was the, this is the gate of the city. And a couple of things that you ought to know tonight that it's the place in the city of highest security and protection. So 4,000 years ago in an ancient tell, an ancient city, that would be the, the only way in. They would typically build up on a hill and they would stonewall all the way around except for the entrance gate and that's the only way in unless you're gonna try and climb up a wall to get over. 
and it was secure and protected because they built with high walls and the walls zigzag going in. So that as you're riding in, let's say you're a conquering army, you come riding in on horseback or on camelback, you gotta go through this, this zigzag to get to the city. And as you're trying to follow this zigzag, it slows you down. And meanwhile, people living in the city are up on the high walls throwing stuff at you. Rocks, stones, sticks, eggs, I don't know, whatever they've got, boiling hot oil. You did not wanna be you know, on the front lines of attacking a city. Very difficult, very secure. The advancing armies would be slowed down. But this was also, as we've talked about recently with Lot, this was the place of judgment and decision. So there in the city gate, at the city gate, the ruler of the city, sometimes a king, sometimes a judge, and the council, they would sit there and they would render decisions and they would have conversations and they would hold court right there at the city gate. Think about that. Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. The gate. So the place of protection, you're gonna take it. The place of wisdom, you're gonna overcome it. Jesus said, if this sounds familiar to you, Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, the rock of faith in him as the Christ, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Understand that gates don't go on the attack. Gates don't leave the city to go attack. Gates are the place of last defense before you get into the city. And Jesus says the gates of Hades will not overpower my church. What does that tell you? It tells you that the church is taking the gate. It's the church is fighting against the gates of Hades. Why? Because if a person dies outside of faith in Jesus Christ, they're gonna go through the gates of Hades. But the gates of Hades will not prevail over the church that I'm building. The church fights that. Every single person that you say, believe in Jesus, every person that you have the privilege to lead to the Lord is one that you have just fought the gates of Hades for. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. So all the deceiving, all the misguiding evil of the enemy's stronghold will fall. It will fall before the church empowered by the Holy Spirit. Gates don't attack. Again, they're defensive. So when the Lord says, Abraham, your seed will possess the gate, this is prophetic in three ways. Truly a three-part prophecy to be fulfilled. Part one, you will possess the gate of your enemies. This is prophetic of the children of Israel coming into the land under the leadership of Joshua and they would take the gates and they would conquer the gates of the cities of the land of Canaan so that it becomes the land of Israel. Your descendants, Abraham. Remember back in 15, he said after four generations, they're gonna come back here. They're gonna be imprisoned and slaved in Egypt for a while. They're gonna come back here. When they come back, they're gonna take the gate. Your descendants, first part of the fulfillment of the prophecy. And we watch it happen, mostly, as they came in under Joshua, most of the gates were taken. Your descendants will take the gate. Second part of the prophecy. I believe it's prophetic of a time yet future. For you see, Revelation tells us Antichrist is going to be in charge. He's gonna take the throne 
of the temple in Jerusalem. Guess what Jesus is gonna do when he comes back? He's gonna take the gate. He will come back through the eastern gate. He will conquer the gates and flood into Jerusalem, us with him. Oh, if you haven't heard that teaching, go listen to Revelation 19. It's so exciting to think about that fact that we go home to be with Jesus, but we come back with him in his mighty return and he takes the gate. So your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And you might note in verse 17, the word there is literally his. It's singular. His enemies. Your seed is also singular. It can speak singularly of the people of Israel, as with Joshua coming in and taking the gate, but it also can speak specifically of Yeshua, of Jesus. And he comes back being the consummate seed of Abraham. He comes back and he possesses the gate of his enemies as he floods into Jerusalem and reestablishes his rule right there. But there's a third fulfillment of this, and it is the church today. And it is the church taking the gate today. So a precursor prophecy, descendants of Abraham under Joshua, a Prophecy yet to be fulfilled as Jesus floods in and takes the gate. But right now, Jesus says to you, says to me, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That's us, that's now. That's the last 2,000 years of the church taking the gate, taking it to the enemy, on the offensive, for Christ's sake, take the gate. Now I'm a little fired up about this. Because the last few days, some interesting things have been taking place. Actually, for the last several months. We can even go back a couple of years. Just interesting things as we watch the, the enemy trying to ply his hand in the world. I want to take you back further. Um, and I, I don't remember the exact year. Jeff, you probably remember it's 2005, maybe? Six? So in 2006, if you were around at the time, we were meeting in the barn and, and Island County posted a cease and desist order on the barn. No longer, well, you, don't meet, stop. No more Sunday services. That was on a Friday. That Sunday morning service was glorious. <laughs> but they said, cease and desist, stop it. Now, understand, Island County doesn't have a beef with the bridge. They didn't then, they don't now. Good Christian people working down at Island County. That wasn't the issue. It was just a legal issue. It was a, you know, we're on private property issue and it doesn't fit issue, you know, and we ended up going to the hearing examiner and he sided with us and they worked with us. It was all fine. But though Island County wasn't opposed to us, guess who has always been opposed to us? The devil. So even if governments and even if organizations come at the church and they don't come at the church for any other reason but just legal reasons, the devil's still trying to undermine what God wants to do. He is always trying to come against us. And I think the church has had a tendency to kind of play it easy. Cease and desist, okay, we better stop. Someone sends a threatening letter, oh, all right, and we get uncomfortable. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you just get tired of playing defense? Did you ever, as, as a Christian in America today, just get tired of being a defensive player? I want to go on offense. I want to catch the ball and run a touchdown. You know, I, that's where the fun is. 
If I played for the NFL, unlikely, but if I did, I want to be on the offensive team, scoring the points. And I think far too often in the church today, we play the defense. We defend the faith. Why don't we go on the offensive with the faith? Why don't we take the faith to the world with greater confidence because we know who wins and we know which side we're on. Why don't we go take the gate? You will possess the gate of his enemies. That's the promise. So many Christians are on the defensive. You know, we're called to be on the offensive. The cross is an offense. The cross offends because the cross paints the most brutal, brutal picture of sin that could be painted. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, an offense, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, which means when you know that you know, there's nothing foolish about following Jesus. There's nothing but glory in that and power and honor and praise that all belongs to him. But again, he says, your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. So while this pertains to Abraham's descendants, while it pertains to the greatest descendant of Abraham, Jesus, all of whom have stormed the, stormed the gates, will storm the gates, it pertains to you and me right now. It's a conquest, but it's a conquest that saves and blesses. Look at verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So here's how it gets real easy. You hear me say, take the gate, which I think would be a great you know, youth rally teaching. Call it take the gate. In fact, you could name a whole youth rally, take the gate, and send you know, T-shirts and logos. I like that. Take the gate. Someone tell Luke. So you could work this up and talk about this, but then you gotta stop and ask, well, okay, what, is that, what does that mean? Like I said, practically, to take the gate practically is you tell somebody about Jesus and every person that gets saved, you have just taken them from the gate. You have just stormed the gates of Hades. So that, that's a, a practical thing. But there's another thing, a, a little less intense, but still equally practical. How do I do this? How can I be a blessing in all the nations of the earth? Listen to his voice. Listen to his voice. Because you have obeyed my voice. Just obey him. That alone would cause the church to go from defensive to immediately offensive if we just obeyed his voice. It's interesting, I was talking to Les earlier today and, and we we're talking about the fact that a lot of Christians don't even know how to hear his voice much less obey his voice. You gotta hear his voice because before you can obey his voice, right? There are a lot of people like, I don't know. I don't know if God talks to me. If he, how, how, many, how do you hear God? That's one of the biggest questions that we're asked, right? How do you hear God? How do you hear God? I wish I could hear God. 
Well, if you can't hear God, how can you obey the voice that you're supposed to be able to hear? Start by hearing God. The other part of the problem of hearing God is there are those who say, well, the Lord told me to do this about everything. (laughs) What are you doing? I'm brushing my teeth. Why? The Lord said so. (laughs) And, And I do want to caution you on that when it comes to hearing the Lord, that you don't just use the phrase God said because it strengthens your case, because it emboldens what you're trying to say. You're driving with your wife, Todd, Driving along, you say, I know what the GPS says, but I think we need to go left. Michelle says, honey, the GPS has rarely been wrong. And you say, well, the Lord said, go left. Not a good idea, bro. Just listen to what she said. Listen to your wife as long as she's listening to the Lord. Right, okay. (laughs) Obey the voice of the Lord. Obey the voice of the Lord. Well, I don't hear the voice of the Lord. Well, then start right here. Start right here. Obey the voice of the Lord. He spoke and it was written. You obey this. You follow him here. You listen right here. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba and I asked at the end on Sunday, where's Isaac? You're not gonna see him again until he comes for his bride. And the picture is absolutely stunning when we get to chapter 24, which, again, maybe or maybe not tonight. Verse 20, though, and this is a little weird. Now, it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. So he says again, after these things, and you ought to pay attention to that Because after these things, that phrase that we talked about Sunday, it it bookends what's going on here. That's significant. The chapter starts out back in verse one. It came about after these things. There's the first bookend. And here we are at the end of it. Now it came about, verse 20, after these things. There's the other bookend. So it's on either side. It leads you into the story on Mount Moriah, and now we're being led out of the story. So what's in the middle of the after these things is incredibly significant, picturesque of the sacrifice of Jesus, but now it's after these things. The first after these things, after Abraham's long sojourn, he's called to execute a passion play with his only son whom he loved, Isaac, But now after these things, the stage is set for a bride to be brought to the son. After the people of Israel's long sojourn, the father executed the actual sacrifice of his only begotten son, his beloved Jesus. And then after those things, the stage was set for the spirit to come fetch the bride for the son. So we are in the after these things, prior to the after these things. If you're reading in Revelation, you know that after these things, Revelation 4 picks up, which means it follows the church age. It talks about what's gonna take place after the church. Right now, we're in that age. Right now, I'll put it to you this way, we're in Genesis 24. Genesis 24 where the servant of Abraham is sent to get the bride. And that is where we reside. But there's a weird little appendix here. 
And it's one of those things that if you're reading through the scriptures, you might go, okay, I guess we just have to have some names here. That must be important. But you really wanna skip on through it to get to the good stuff, the story stuff. But listen, he says, behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn and Booz his brother. I'm not kidding. That's how you say their names, Uz and Booz. Couple of party guys, I guess. Uz and Booz and Kimuel, the father of Aram, and Chesed and Chadzo and Pildash and Jidlap and Bethuel, great children's names. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight, Milcah bore to, to Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine, whose name was Reuma, also bore Teba and Gaham and Tachash and Meacha. <laughs> Great. Next chapter, please. Hold it. These three verses are here, this strange little appendix at the end. Now we're at the very end of the sixth Toldot, the Toldot of Terah, the what became of Terah. But it's here for one reason alone, and that is to introduce the bride-to-be, Rebecca. This is Rebecca's line, and you need to know that as we now approach the next chapter, which is chapter 23, which brings us to the death and burial of Sarah, and just for a lift, I'm gonna save that one for Sunday. We're gonna have a teaching on Sunday. I'll, I'll give you a warning ahead of time. It's just called Bury Your Dead. So if you're in a good mood, come on. If you're a little down, might wanna think twice. Bury your dead, because in chapter 23, Sarah dies. And we will see this saint of old, perhaps the most saintly among all the women in the Hebrew scriptures. She passes away, and Abraham is gonna have to deal with that. We'll talk about that on Sunday. Now, the question is, how much you got in you for the rest of tonight? Do we go on? Because I'm gonna do all chapter 24 at one sitting. I can save it for next week or we can do it right now. Like we have a choice? Oh no, you have a choice. The doors are right there. All right, chapter 24, verse one, which is really what I wanted to talk about tonight anyway. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. How old? 140. And you can get that specific age. We know he was 140 at the beginning of chapter 24 because you can compare Genesis 21, verse five, and Genesis 25, verse 20. And I'll let you do that on your own, but if you look at those two, we, you can do the math, and you come to Abraham is 140 right here. God had immeasurably blessed Abraham by this time. He's incredibly wealthy, He's got flocks and herds and he's got male servants and female servants and, and his tents spread out. And I think I told you in a recent study that we believe he had as many as a thousand servants alone. That his military security team would have numbered over 300. And so he had all of these people and he was one big massive sojourner. <laughs> big movable city moving about down in the Negev. But God immeasurably blessed him because Jesus said, Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You seek him first. 
and let him take care of the rest. By the way, that's not prosperity gospel. That's not saying if you seek him, he's gonna make you wealthy like Abraham. No, he may not, but he's gonna take care of you. The promise of Jesus, you seek the kingdom and his righteousness, they become your top priority and he'll take care of the rest. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to think about that. You focus on him. That's not my promise to you, that's Jesus' promise. This comes from the one who says, by myself I have sworn. So God will provide, Jehovah Yahweh, he provided, he, he gave immeasurably to Abraham. However, what this doesn't mean is that Abraham saw the covenant fulfilled. Yes, he was blessed in every way that a man can be blessed here on the earth at that point in his life. But back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, I'll just read it to you. It says, all these, including Abraham and Sarah, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own, And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham is immeasurably blessed, but note he is still a sojourner. At this point, he has purchased one plot of land in chapter 23, a cave in Hebron the cave of Machpelah, a burial cave. That's all he owns. He doesn't live there. He doesn't live on the the field there in front of the cave. He's still sojourning. That's all he's got. But he's a sojourner in the land because he's still waiting for the heavenly city, waiting for the promise of God to be completely fulfilled. Blessed in every way, but he still hasn't seen the big blessing and he knows it. So verse two, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had the charge of all that he owned, please, place your hand under my thigh. Awkward. I can't even imagine. I can't imagine calling Les into my office. Hey, Les. (laughs) Got something I need you to do, but first, place your hand under my thigh. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. Place your hand under my thigh. Why does he want the servant to go get a wife from his people rather than just right around there? Because through Isaac, this covenant promise must stand, but, but what's with the hand under the thigh? This is an ancient swearing practice that obviously is not informed by the hypersexualization of our culture. Now, I, I'm gonna be very serious with you for a moment because it is funny to me to read a phrase like, place your hand under my thigh. It sounds weird, but Kidner puts it this way. The privacy of the thigh and its association with begetting made the oath particularly solemn. So we get weirded out by this stuff. Because our, our culture is just so oversexed in every way. But this was, this was as symbolic, my friends, as circumcision. 
Pastors who do long teachings about circumcision, you just gotta wonder. And it's funny to me because John Corson has a teaching where he talks about circumcision and he spends like 45 or 50 minutes talking about circumcision and you just get more and more uncomfortable the more he talks about it and the more descriptive he is. This is the same idea here. You know, I, I began thinking, well, well, maybe place your hand under the thigh means, you know, down toward the knee. I mean, that's weird enough, but I'd be okay with that. That's not what it means, my friends. It means pretty much what you think it means. Which again, freaks me out. But in the culture and at the time, and what Abraham is signifying is something incredibly significant. In the same way that circumcision is the perfect sign because it has to do with the seed. So this oath that he has his servant take has to do with the seed. So place your hand under my thigh because not only is the servant swearing a, a profound allegiance to his master, but he's swearing to the master's heir. He is making a promise to Abraham and to Isaac equally, a promise to the heir, a promise to the offspring, a promise to Abraham's seed. And this oldest in the household, this servant, is probably Eliezer. We saw him named back in Genesis 14 where, where God says, who, who are you gonna give me as a descendant? The only one in my household is Eliezer, the one I trust. Right now, he's gonna be my descendant. Eliezer, whose name means God my helper. God my helper, which is what Jesus says is the name of the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside, the helper, the comforter. God my helper, the name of Eliezer means, but what's interesting to me is that if it is Eliezer in chapter 24, we wouldn't know because the servant is not named in the entire chapter, not a single time, not once. Why not? I mean, if it's Eliezer, say it's Eliezer. He called his servant Eliezer and he came into him. He's already named him. Why not just mention him? Or at some point in the narrative, you would think Eliezer's name would pop up. It doesn't. Why? For the same reason that the Holy Spirit is not named in the Bible. The Spirit doesn't have a name other than Yahweh, other than Yeshua. The Holy Spirit is simply referred to as the Spirit of truth. Jesus says in John 16, 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says. The name is Jesus. The Spirit is not named. Why? Because it's Jesus we glorify. It's Jesus we worship. I've said many times over the years, you know that the Holy Spirit is present in a fellowship of believers, large or small. You know the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit has shown up where Jesus is glorified, where he is the object and the centerpiece of all our worship. The servant is unnamed because the son is the point. And what's happening in Genesis 24 that's so marvelous is the father, Abraham, who is the father in the scenario, sends the servant, his helper, to fetch the bride, Rebecca, for his son, Isaac. 
And that's the beautifully painted picture here. The father sends the servant to fetch the bride for the son. But watch this, verse five. The servant said to him, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, beware. In the Hebrew, literally, guard this. Guard this, keep this, heed this. That you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, to your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel, his angel, perhaps Yeshua, perhaps the angel of the Lord, doesn't say, but he'll send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. Don't take Isaac backwards. Don't cause Isaac to go back to Ur, back to the old ways, back to my father's house, back to the world. Don't take Isaac back to the world. Instead, bring his bride out. And the picture here to me is great. Bring the bride out of the world. Don't go back to the world. I mentioned earlier about the church being on the defensive. My greatest concern, and perhaps yours as well, for the American church, is that I see it going back to the world. Don't take my son back to the world. Bring the bride out. Bring the bride from the world. We've gone from, as Christians in this culture, we've gone from being on the offensive this was a Christian nation. I'm not saying perfect, I'm not saying all together, but Judeo-Christian values were the substance of this nation as it began. We were on the offensive when we came across, when we established here. And then we went on the defensive, defending the faith, and rightly so, but on the defensive because, well, the enemy started to rise up and challenge some of, some of what we brought. And then we went to making concessions. Well, we all have to live together, right? So, so let's bend a little bit and let's, you have your time and we'll have our time. And, and we've made all kinds of concessions and then we started to compromise. Well, is this really that big a deal? Do you know how many churches even have a Wednesday night Bible study anymore? It's shocking to me that this is rare, that a church actually would open the word and gather on a Wednesday night midweek. Most churches just don't do it. Why? Well, we got sports. We got busy things. We got so much going on. And so the church says, well, you know, maybe we should just give up the night because after all, we're losing people on that night anyway. So we get defensive and we compromise and ultimately we capitulate and that leads to a worldly church which is devoid of message and power to the point where I wonder honestly, and just speaking from my heart here, I wonder honestly why some churches even exist. What do you mean? I mean, if there's no call to holiness, if there's no call to the word of God, if there's no call to stand up and be different than the world, if we're gonna look exactly like the world, what's the point? Man, go join the Lions Club, and no offense to the Lions Club. Go join the Kiwanis, no offense to them. You can join any club and have social service events and pancake breakfast and do things like that. That's fine, you can do that. But if we are in the name of Christ, shouldn't that immediately make us different? 
And if our message to the world is the cross, shouldn't that mean we are automatically on the offensive? Paul is quoting the Lord, 2 Corinthians 6, 17. He says, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Just like Abraham says, go bring a bride to me. He doesn't say this, but he he implies, I'll be a father to her. She'll be a bride to my son. Bring her here, but don't you take him there. Bring the bride out of the world. And it doesn't mean when God says, come out of their midst and be separate and don't touch what's unclean, it doesn't mean that we hole up and close in and quiet down. We gotta be separate from the world. No, it means we press on loving each other, loving in the name of Jesus, but we press on witnessing Christ as we go, and if we're an offense because the cross is an offense, so be it. We're doing it because we love, because we're taking the gates of Hades, because we're tired of sitting back and watching people go to hell. Philippians 3.13, Paul says, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Abraham's 140 years old. He's still pressing on. He is still pressing on for the upward prize. His eyes are on the prize. Verse nine, so the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And the servant took 10 camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia. That's literally Aram between the two rivers in the Hebrew. So probably not all the way back around and down to Ur of the Chaldees, but probably into what would be uh, central Syria today, which at one time was the Arameans. So Aram between the two rivers, which would be the Tigris and the Euphrates, to the city of Nahor, which is Abraham's brother. And he made the the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. I love it. The servant, unnamed, doesn't ask the Lord for something spectacular. He doesn't say, give me a supernatural sign. May the woman who is to be for Isaac come out with her eyes aglow and her hair floating upward. (laughs) Then I'll know. Oh, Lord, give me a sign. May she be the one who's floating three feet off the ground as she comes to draw. Or, Lord, may she be the one who takes her bucket and simply holds it over the well and the water comes out and fills the bucket. That would be, no, he just says, let her be the one who offers me a drink and also provides water for the camels. It's very simple, very straightforward. What he's asking for is confirmation of character. Let it be the one 
who's kind enough to offer a drink and servant enough to water the camels. Good nature in a bride. In verse 15, behold, he had finished speaking, or before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, note that, before he had finished speaking, because, because God answers even before we're done. Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had had relations with her, and she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, please, let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. <laughs> Prayer answered. Good, we're done. Grab her, put her on the camel. Go back to Abraham. I mean, that would be my response. She's got to be the one. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. She quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his Camels, listen, camels drink 20 to 40 gallons of water at a sitting. And there were 10 of them. So that means she had to draw somewhere between two and 400 gallons of water. The pitcher being maybe a gallon, maybe on the outside, the heaviest of five. But still, how many trips to the well? How many trips to the spring? She's filling up, she's coming back. She's, you know, one count, look, 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 and she's back down. More count, look, look, and she's back and forth. I mean, this is not like, oh yeah, here's a little water for your camel. This was some work. This would have taken a good amount of time. A lot of trips to the spring. But what a beautiful picture. Don't miss, there are so many pictures here in chapter 24. The bride fills her jar from the well, and as a result, serves tirelessly. Just as Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. How is it that a follower of Jesus Christ can continue to serve tirelessly in his life? Keep drawing from the well. You just draw from the well, the well of the Spirit of God, the Spirit who wells up within you. That's where our strength comes from. That's why when we're feeling weary or we're feeling tired or we're worn down, we rest in the Lord. We pray in the Spirit. We ask his Holy Spirit to give us what is necessary to do what he's called us to do, whether that's watering ten camels or caring for brothers or sisters or sharing Jesus in the world. We drink from the well of water springing to eternal life. In verse 21, meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence. I mean, he's amazed by this to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Okay, well, that it seems pretty obvious. She's the answer to his prayer. What he prayed is what she did. It's go time, manservant. Go get her. Do this thing. Hey, servant of the Lord waits on the Lord. A servant of the Lord doesn't rush. Even when the prayer is seemingly immediately answered, okay, that's great. You know what you do? You make sure that you've got all the information. You don't have to rush. It doesn't have to be done by Thursday. The servant of the Lord waits. It never is a lack of faith to wait for full assurance. 
the servant here, he's silent with expectation because he's got one more thing to discover. In case you forgot, I'll tell you, he needs to know, is she of Abraham's father's house? Because what Abraham asked him to do was go get a girl from my household. Well, he does, a lot of women just came out from the city of Nahor. We don't know if she's connected or not. She does everything he prayed for, but is she the one? So be sure of that. It's okay to take that time. And in verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing 10 shekels in gold. And he said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Now you know she's the one. Verse 25, and again she said to him, oh, we have plenty of straw and feed and room to lodge in. Generous spirit, this is good. But what's he do? The man then bowed low and worshiped the Lord. Verse 26, he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. In the very next verse, then the girl ran. Well, no wonder she did. She's, well, why? But hold it right here a second. How do you know if the spirit is really moving? on a Sunday or where two or three are gathered in his name, how do you really know the Spirit has, has shown up at a rally or a revival meeting? When God the helper is present, worship happens. Worship happens. The servant here, a, a picture throughout of the Spirit of the Lord, of the helper, the servant is worshiping because that's what happens when the Spirit is present. Jesus is worshiped. Remember John 16, 14, he will glorify me, Jesus says. And the servant doesn't say, oh yeah, look at me and my bad self. Uh-huh. <laughs> he, doesn't say, he doesn't say, oh yeah, way to go, Abraham, you called it. He says, Baruch Yahweh, Baruch Yahweh. And the Jews today will say, Baruch Atah Adonai. Blessed be your name, Lord Adonai. Not saying Yahweh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. The servant says Yahweh. Note that, blessed be the Lord. I know it's Yahweh because it's in small caps. The Hebrew here is the tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H. It's Yahweh. He says, Baruch, Yahweh. I thought they didn't know the name yet. I'm the one who told you that. Well, actually, Exodus chapter six, verse three, where God says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but my, by my name, Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Well, wait a minute, but the servant says Yahweh. Servant knows the name. Oh, by the way, in case you missed it, back in verse three, Abraham has him swear by the name Yahweh. So Abraham knows the name. So how can Abraham know the name and the servant uses the name and we see Yahweh's name prior to Exodus chapter six? How can that be the case? And then God says, by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. They knew me as El Shaddai. Well, it's very simple. The servant knows the name, but he know, doesn't know him as Yahweh. <laughs> let, me, let me see if I can make this clear. 
There are some who know that my name is Rick, but they don't know me by the name. Cheryl knows me by the name. Corey knows me by the name. A number of you know me by the name. You hear the name Rick, you see me coming, you hear the name Rick, and you know what that means. The good, the bad, and the ugly, you are fully aware of it. But there are others who hear the name Rick and they have assumptions about what that means because they don't know me. God was presenting himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as El Elyon, El Olam, El Shaddai, El Roy, all these different descriptive names so that they could get an understanding of his character, of his nature, of who he is and who he was. But to Moses and the children of Israel, he is Yahweh, I am, which is how they learned to know him. I am, what do you mean? I mean, they learned to know that he is immediately present always. He's I am. He's not only God Almighty, God Most High, God who sees. No, he is I am right now. And that's how Moses would learn of him. And that's how the children of Israel would recognize him because they got up in the morning and walked out of their tents and there was the Shekinah glory of Yahweh, I am. He's still here. And the cloud would lift and they would follow and the cloud would stop or the fire by night. There he is, I am always present. That's how they came to know him. They knew him by the name. So Abraham knew of the name, clearly had heard the name Yahweh, but he didn't know him by the name Yahweh. Yahweh would really fully express that I amness to Moses and the children of Israel. But here the servant says, Baruch, Yahweh. And then verse 28, then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. You're gonna hear more of Laban as we go further along. When he saw, note this, when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, this is what the man said to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said to him, come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside, since I have prepared the, the house and a place for the camels? So a little bit of time has gone by. You need to understand, by verse 31, the story's been told twice. So the story happened to the servant, and then the servant expressed what had happened to him to Rebekah, and then Rebecca, having heard it, goes and tells Laban and Bethuel and her family, so now they've heard it. We're already two times into the story and it's about to be told again because it's so important. But note that when Laban saw, when Laban saw the ring and the bracelets, verse 30, and when he heard the words of Rebecca, everything changed. Oh, come in, come in, he says. He saw the servant's gifts and he heard the word. And that's how it works. That's how a bride is one. When someone sees the gifts and hears the word, a bride can be saved. The gifts and the word, it's a powerful combination. First Thessalonians 1.5, our gospel did not come to you in word only. Oh, it did come in word, but not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What if Paul had been defensive rather than offensive? You know why Paul went on mission? Because he took the offensive 
And he went in the power of the Spirit with the Word of God. It was the Word and the Spirit. The servant's gifts and the Word spoken, they caused Laban in the story to say, come on into the house. And that's the kind of impact that it has when we bring the Word of God and we walk by the Spirit of God. Verse 28. I'm sorry, we already did 28. Verse 32. So the man entered the house. And then Laban unloaded the camels and he gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. But when the food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. I love that. I'm not gonna eat. No, 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 I'll eat eat in a minute. I gotta tell you why I'm here. Because nothing is more fulfilling than fulfilling the master's will. That's what the servant of the Lord does. Servant of the Lord will put off lunch because, man, I gotta tell you about Jesus. I gotta fulfill the will of my master. Job 23, verse 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Jesus was there at the well. John chapter four, verse 31, and the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him a burger, did he? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And Jesus was so fixed, so focused, so on the offensive, you might say, so ready to take the gate of his enemies that he even said in Luke 22, 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this, share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom comes. And you know what? All my life, I've always thought that was abstinence. I've always thought he's not gonna eat of the food. He's not gonna drink of the wine until he does so in the kingdom because he's gonna hold off. He's gonna wait. It's not abstinence. It's focus. He's too busy to eat. He's got a job to do. Jesus is on the offensive in this world. And Jesus would say to you and to me, I'll eat when it's done. That's focus. That's someone who's taken the gospel. And so the servant says, as much, I will not eat until I've told my business. And so Laban says, speak on. And so he said, verse 34, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. And he's given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. And I know Laban's eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger because I know something about Laban. But I think it's interesting here that he doesn't say, the servant doesn't say, I'm Eliezer, man of Damascus. See, that's where he was from. That's his name. So tell us your story. Okay, first of all, I'm Abraham's servant and that's all you get. Why? because he is clear about his identity and he is on mission. I am a servant of the Lord. That's who I am. Can you say that? Do you believe that? I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That is who I am. Are you clear about your identity in Christ? And if you're unclear, if you wanna get clear, focus on what God has done in Christ, through Christ. Abraham's servant says the Lord has greatly blessed my master. He's become rich. He's given him flocks and herds and all these things. He's focused on what's happened. 
He's focused on the master. And Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father. Oh, note that, note that. The servant says in the middle of verse 35, the Lord has blessed my master and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. The Lord's given all this to Abraham. The implication is I'm here to get a bribe for his son. Guess who gets all that belongs to Abraham? The son. Isaac gets it. And so will the bride as she comes along. Jesus says all things have been handed over to me by my father. Jesus says, John 16, 15, all things that the father has are mine. The son's got it all. If you want it from the father, you gotta get it from the son. And what do you give the son who has it all? You get him a bride, verse 36. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in, whom, in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house, to my relatives, and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, suppose the woman does not follow me. And he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife, this is Abraham talking. You'll take a wife for my son, from my relatives, and from my father's house. Listen to the faith of the man. You go do this. God will send his angel. It's good. He's got you covered. You're going to be successful. But then he says, where am I? And I said, you'll be successful. Take a wife. And then, verse 41, (laughs) you will be free from my oath when you come to my relatives, and if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. Don't miss this. Abraham now twice has underscored free will in this whole procedure. Rebecca doesn't have to say yes. The servant doesn't have to force the bride to come home. The master allows a choice. You go tell her. You go offer this to her. She has the choice to come, and if she won't, you're free. You're not under any oath, verse 42 So I came today, he says, to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will make my journey on which I go successful, behold, I am standing by the spring, and may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw and to whom I say, please let me drink a little water from your jar, she will say to me, you drink and I will water your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we've heard it before. This is a long chapter, 67 verses, and we're only in verse 44 because they keep telling the story again and again. Can't we just jump to the end? No. Why? So significant. In the next verse, we learn something we didn't know. Verse 45, before I had finished speaking in my heart. And I think that's very significant. Speaking in my heart. Now we know how the servant was praying praying by the well. He wasn't standing there, hands lifted to heaven, oh, Lord God, for everybody to hear. He's standing by the well saying, Lord, Lord, let it be the woman. He's probably not even speaking out loud at all. He's speaking in his heart, he says. And I love that because very early on in Scripture, we understand something. God hears prayers in the heart. 
And you're like, well, yeah, that's how I pray all the time. Good. He hears you. He's clear with you. 1 Samuel 1.13. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. God heard her. Or Nehemiah, standing before the king. And the king said to me, he writes, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I guarantee you in the king's court right then, Nehemiah didn't say, hang on a second, Lord. (laughs) He just instantly, Lord, I need you with me. Praying in the heart. Listen, there are times when I pray in my heart, and you may think this is weird, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. I pray in my heart because I don't want the enemy to hear what I'm saying out loud. This is just for Jesus. There are other times I pray out loud because I want the enemy to hear what I'm praying. Speaking in your heart, Romans 8, 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should. So many of us, the right words, the eloquence, all the verses coming to mind, we don't have all that. I'm like, I don't even know how to pray. Pray in your heart. Pray to the Lord. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 40 five going on, I prayed in my heart speaking, behold, then Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the water to the spring and she drew and I said to her, please let me drink. And she quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder. She said, drink and I'll water your camels also. So I drank and she watered the camels also. And then I asked her and I said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists and I bowed low and worshiped the Lord, that is Yahweh, and blessed Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. In other words, it's your call. They see the gifts. They hear the word now for the second time. It's compelling. But again, Rebecca and family are free to say no. And this is important for us as followers, for us as servants to emulate this because the servant of the Lord, when we see God's hand all over something, we don't have to push it. We don't have to bring on the hard sell. We don't have to manipulate the situation. Man, if God's in this and the servant knows he is, the servant doesn't have to close the deal and neither do you. The servant of the Lord never has to close the deal. I think sometimes we're not evangelical. I think sometimes we don't go on the offensive because we're afraid we're gonna have to somehow close the deal and I don't know how to do that. Don't worry about that. The gospel is not suited to the hard sell. The gospel is about freedom. Here's the truth. You choose it or don't, but here it is. 2 Corinthians 2.17, we're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That'll put boldness in your offense. 2 Corinthians 4.1, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. We've announced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So be genuine. Just be who you are in Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize 
and know that he's got the rest. Verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel replied, the matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken, as Yahweh has spoken. And when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. This whole thing is just one big exercise of worship for the servant of the Lord. How long has he been in Abraham's house? Long time. He's his oldest servant. That's why we think Eliezer. So the faith of Abraham, we've been so zeroed in on the faith of this man. What about the faith of his servant who's been watching this whole time? That's the beauty of being in the household of faith. That's the value, by the way, of the church, of gathering together, not out there all doing it all on my own, is I see your faith. You see mine. Together, our faith pings off of one another, and our faith grows because we walk together. And the servant in the house has the faith of Abraham now rubbing off all over him. In verse 53, so the servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. That's what the helper does for the bride. It's what the servant does, the spirit for the bride. Isaiah 61:10, he clothes me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Revelation 19:8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I love that verse because the whole picture is so beautiful. The beauty of the saint is provided by the spirit. So when I do righteous things, when I do good things, when I do things that are of the Lord that set me apart in this world, they're beautiful because he's adorning me. He's provided for my righteousness. He's given me the love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all the rest. He dresses us up first 54, and then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night, and they arose in the morning and said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days, say 10, and afterwards she may go, which actually isn't exactly what he says. He says in the Hebrew, let the girl stay with us days, say 10. He doesn't say a few days, and even days, the phraseology here is, let her stay with us 10. 10, it could be 10 days, could be 10 months. The whole idea here isn't a delay. Hang on, don't, don't be in such a rush. Oh, let her stay here a, a bit longer. You're gonna later discover this about Laban. He is a master procrastinator. He is a master of delay. Stalling, I believe here, and later on he will with Jacob. Stalling to skim a bit more off the top, to get what you can out of this. Beware of those who try to stall your faith. What do you mean? I mean you're excited about following Jesus and someone says, calm down, dial it down a bit. You don't really wanna go do that. Just pull it back a bit. I respect your faith. Just don't be offensive. Careful, there are Labans all over the place who just want to slow the bride down. 
The Bible says, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so the servant says in verse 56, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Because when you know the will of the Lord, do it. Let nothing stand in your way. Don't be delayed. Do what he asks you to do. If you're not sure about his will, wait. But as soon as you know, do it. Verse 56, 57. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Why? Because the bride wants to go to the groom. The bride wants to be with him. She hadn't even seen him yet. And she says, I will go. You know what Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 8? Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation for your souls. I haven't seen Jesus, but I can't wait to see him. I will go to him, says the bride. Verse 59 and they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse, a woman named Deborah. We know this from Genesis 35:8. Her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebecca and they said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess, oh, the gate of those who hate them. Gate of the enemy. Then Rebekah arose with her maids and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. The servant takes the bride. The servant sent out by the father to get the bride. Now he's got the bride and the servant is now leading the bride. That's what's going on right now. The spirit leads the bride. The spirit went to fetch the bride. The spirit has us. In fact, two quick keys to our sojourn. You might jot these down. Number one, ride the camels. What? Ride the camels. Did you notice how many camels the servant has with him? Ten. Ten, which draws us immediately, if you're a Bible student, to the Ten Commandments. The camels are like the Ten Commandments. How so? Ride the camels. That is, listen to the commandments. We're doing that right. You're right. You realize you're on a camel tonight? Metaphorically, as we study the Torah, as we're in the Word, we're riding the camels. The servant's leading us. And we're in the word of God. Ride the camels. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Paul said the law, Galatians 3, 24, has become our tutor to do what? To lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So ride the camels. We don't keep the law, but the law is good. The word of God is good. We're in the Hebrew scriptures because it's good. Ride the camels and follow the helper. Ride the camels and follow the helper. John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. What do you mean, Jesus? I mean where the spirit goes, you go. The spirit is leading. Rebecca and her ladies are riding the camels, as they follow. And, and this is all leading them where? Leading them to the son, bringing them to Isaac, 
a picture again of Jesus. Well, verse 62, now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahai Roy, well of the God who sees, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out, verse 63, to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. The word meditate, suah, in Hebrew, is the only time in the entire Bible this word is used. So the meaning is a little difficult to discern. Uh, it's been translated, he was out for a stroll, but it's also translated to commune. And so what we think is going on here is Isaac is praying. Don't miss this. Isaac is out praying. Isaac, who we have not seen since Mount Moriah. We haven't seen him since the sacrifice. What's he doing right now as the bride is coming to him, as the servant spirit is leading the bride to him? What's he doing? He's praying. And you may wonder, well, why is the son absent from this whole story? He's not. He's not any more than Jesus is absent from your story. Right now, what's he doing? He's praying for the bride. The Bible says, Hebrews 7, 25, therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, as your story is playing out, bride of Christ, he's praying for you. He's out for a stroll and he's making intercession for his bride. Verse 64, Rebecca lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. King James says she lit off the camel. Just the first, I don't know. She's <laughs> she steps off the camel, note that. It's actually important. She sees the sun and she dismounts from the camel because while the law brings us to the sun, we are not obligated to the law when the sun arrives in the heart. So we get off those camels. Verse 65, she said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, he is my master. And she took her veil and covered herself because that's what you did. That was honor to Isaac not to be seen, you know, before the wedding. And so she takes a veil, she covers herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Verse 67, then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I know we've been here a while, it's your fault, but hang on just a second longer. It's been a few years now, actually, since Mount Moriah. And again, doing the math and putting this together, Abraham, 140 at the beginning of this chapter. Sarah died at 127. It's been three years since Mount Moriah. Three years later, here comes the bride. Three years after the death now of Sarah, here comes the bride. Sarah's tent is still there. Interesting. Her tent is still standing. And so Isaac brings his bride into his mother's tent, which was cultural. In fact, that right there, this whole verse 67, I could do a whole teaching on this. It's, it's marriage. That this is a, a marriage ceremony 
a covenant that's taking place and a ceremony and the consummation all there in verse 67. But what's really interesting to me, what happened after Jesus was offered on Mount Moriah? See, after Isaac was offered on Mount Moriah, Sarah died. After Jesus was offered on Mount Moriah, Israel, as it were, died. The nation was destroyed. It broke Jesus' heart. He's the one who cried out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed for you to, to, to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so your house will be left to you desolate, Jerusalem. Jesus' heart broke over the fall of Jerusalem, over the mess of Israel, and like Sarah's death, we see this, this death. But, but just as Rebekah was brought by Isaac into Sarah's tent, you can say the same of us. The bride of Christ have been brought into Sarah's tent. That is, we have come under the covering of Israel. We're drawn in, we're, we're, we're grafted in. Romans 9, 4, the Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever, amen, and we are in that tent. Israel, for all tents and purposes, no pun intended, sorry. I really didn't even mean that until I said it. Israel, dead, like Sarah, dead. Rebecca brought in under the covering. Rebecca was not brought in by Isaac to replace Sarah any more than we're here to replace Israel. We're not. But during the times of the Gentiles, the church has displaced Israel. We have come in, grafted into the promises, grafted into the rich root of the olive tree, Branches were broken off, Paul says, that will be regrafted in. And this is the beauty of the whole plan because just as Rebekah is now brought into the tent and is a comfort to Isaac after the death of his mother, so I believe the church is a comfort to Christ. How so? He watches the death of Israel, the destruction of the nation. But you know what's going on? The bride is in the world. The bride is in love with the son. The bride has come under the covering. The bride is with the son, following the son. And by the way, as far as Sarah is concerned, you know she's still in the land today? Her tomb is in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. Sarah's tomb, Abraham's tomb, the bodies are there and a resurrection is promised. Sarah will resurrect, literally her body will rise. She's gonna walk out with Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Leah. And that's an interesting story in itself. Are gonna walk out right into the promised land, resurrected by God in the kingdom. That's huge. But you know what? Spiritually, Sarah's tent will be revived. And we have come into that, but spiritually speaking, Sarah is referred to as the mother of Israel. Spiritually speaking, Israel will be revived. Israel will be. We're already seeing Israel back in the land. There's gonna be a massive revival as Jews all over the world come to full faith in Jesus, 
because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. But the Bible also says, and so all Israel will be saved, and all Israel at that time coming to faith in Jesus like a resurrection of Sarah. This chapter is overwhelming. All the, and there's more here. There are things we missed. I encourage you to read through it and consider it again. I wanna leave you with one last nugget before we go. Rebecca's name. Rebecca's name in the Hebrew is literally Ribka. Ribka. And her name means one who ensnares. And she will. Actually, the name fits really well. One who ensnares, Isaac loves her. You know what she's gonna do? She's gonna ensnare her husband into giving away the blessing to her conniving favorite second-born son, Jacob. She's gonna pull off a deception. She's gonna ensnare him. Her name fits. If you wonder where Jacob learned his wily ways, I suggest to you one who ensnares, Ribka, his mama. I had to tell you that, and you might say, why, why ruin the love story now? Tell us about Ribka next week. My friends, we gotta know her name because we are so like Rebecca. We are the bride that can connive, aren't we? We're the church who thinks we can do it our way from time to time. We're Christians who think we can grab hold of this and make it work. We can get God to join us in our strategies. We can pull this thing off. Even if we have to use a little deception, we can make it happen. We're like Rebecca. But get this, in spite of, in light of the ensnaring of Ribka and her favorite son, Jacob, and in spite of our tangles and tricks and traps, God's will gets done. And that brings me so much joy. Even for all of my foolishness, trying to make it work. God's still getting his will done. He gets his will done. He will get his will done through a heel catcher named Jacob. Why? By myself, I have sworn. Father, thank you so much for drawing us through this chapter tonight. A lot to cover, a lot of ground to cover. Even as the servant went, oh, I don't know, Lord, some five or 600 miles, it feels like maybe we've done that tonight. But my prayer, Father, is that you will seal now to our hearts what you've shown us, the spirit and the bride, the servant and the bride, the father and the son, and all that is in this chapter that is so beautiful and so picturesque of the work, Holy Spirit, that you're doing right now in us tonight, leading us forward even as we ride the camel of your word and come along as you bring us to the sun. Lord, I'm, I'm just so thankful for how profound and moving and prophetic and poetic and deeply touching your word truly is. So Father, draw us near to you as your bride. Lord, don't allow us to slip back into the world. Draw us out of the world and secure us for your own purposes. And finally, Lord, I pray, because you say, by myself I have sworn, I pray, Father, draw us to be out on the offensive 
May we be offending people right and left with the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <music>